to the Suicide Prevention Show, where we are making suicide, especially teen suicide, a thing of the past. And I am super happy that you are here because we are about to go on a journey. We're going to go on a journey. We're going to have a little talk. You know, this whole attitude of, I don't want to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. So hang on, all my controls are in front of his picture. My apologies there, Greg. Hang on, we're gonna bring in Greg Sanders and we're gonna talk about it. Here we go. All right, there you are. Ta-da! Hello. Hello, Greg, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's so great to be here. I'm super excited. I'm very happy to you know, get have a chance to even meet you and to get to know you a little bit. You know, we met at that three-day event online, and we had a whole 15 minutes to get to know each other. <laughs> Not nearly enough time, that's for sure. So, total disclaimer, everybody. I invited Greg to be a speaker so that I could get to know Greg better, and also because you have this amazing gift of being able to help people have conversations. So... Greg, tell us a little bit about yourself. Let people know who you are and why this is important to you. Okay, thank you very much. So, uh, Greg Sanders, I have a PhD in sociology and I slaved for many months and years uh, to get that. It doesn't mean a whole lot now because I'm no longer teaching at the university level, but uh, I did study uh, human groups and uh, communities because sociology is all about the science of society, this is the science of groups. So I bring that to everything that I think about. So when things happen to my own family, the first thing I do is be a human being and experience that personally, of course. <laughs> but, you mean they uh, didn't turn you into a response robot? Uh, not yet, <laughs> not yet. Uh, I live near St. Louis. I live in Greenville, Illinois, which is a little town about 45 minutes, 50 minutes from the river, the Mississippi River. Uh, farming community, we have soybeans and corn that are grown around here, but we have a university here also. And I taught here for 25 years and my parents taught here for about uh, 75 years combined. Wow. So together, the three of us have taught here for 100 years at this little, this little school. And um, that's where I've been hanging out. But I, uh, I'm a Midwest kid, but I've been to different places. I've been around the world primarily with language study groups. My mother was a Spanish professor, so I can speak Spanish fluently and several other languages to some extent because I lo love languages. I traveled a lot. So even though I live in a little tiny town, I get out a lot. And uh, my father was a music professor. So I play the piano in the other room and several other instruments and I love music. And I love my Spotify account where I can listen to any music I want to listen to. Uh, my wife lives here with me in Greenville. All of my kids are grown now, but we raised seven children in this home right here. And uh, so that's a little bit about me. Uh, four of my children remain alive and three of them have passed away from various things and one of them from suicide, which is why I'm on tonight and I'm sure no, nobody wants to be on here as a special guest as the parent of a suicide victim. I'm just put, say that, but uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult to learn how to talk about it, how to think about it, how to open up about the topic. 
So we're going to go where angels fear to tread. And when you say it's difficult to know how to think about it, how to open up about it, how to talk about it, what mm -hmm. of those is a starting place? I mean, it's such a heart-wrenching place. And Greg, I'll be bluntly honest. The first time I had someone say that they would talk on the show mm -hmm. who had lost a child to suicide, I almost turned them down. Because I wasn't, it wasn't about my audience. I'd love to say that I was just like not sure that the world was ready for this. Because one, I still had no idea how systemic it is. Mm -hmm. But the other is I wasn't sure I was ready for that. Because my first thought was that parents would be really pissed at me. Because I got really, really lucky. And my daughter survived. Mm -hmm. And so I actually really thought, and I almost, like I said, Almost this didn't happen because that was my thinking about it. So did that ever cross your mind to be angry at the people who whose kids attempted and didn't die? I don't think so. Um, this is the third, this was the third child that we've lost. And so we, we have, we've learned not to, blame other people it's much more likely that you'd blame yourself and I think that 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 is kind of how some people that's how we dealt with it is that we just wanted to say what could we have done to prevent this surely we missed a step we missed the signs we heard of course of other people who had children that that survived um, but my first uh, son who passed away from leukemia in 91 was uh, in the same room with a young man who survived. In fact, he reached adulthood and came back to serve in that same cancer unit serving children. And we heard about a story, you know, 30 years later, and we were always so grateful, right, that he survived because it's, it's so hard to lose one child. You, sh you just don't want to lose more, whether or not they're your children or anyone else's children. Ah. That, that's a different perspective that I hadn't thought about. But yeah, because you, you had been on this journey. So you lost one child to leukemia. Correct. And then you said you lost another. We lost two in 2018. We lost my daughter in August to a heart condition. She was born with a congenital heart illness, but she was doing fine, but she just passed away suddenly in the night from an arrhythmia. And then two weeks or two months to the day after that, our son committed suicide. And we didn't even want to call it suicide at first because it just seemed preposterous to us that a healthy young man, as talented as he was with as many friends as he had, as loving as he was, could do something like that intentionally. He fell off of our house head first. And mm -hmm. so we thought, well, it could have been accidental. And that's kind of what we thought until we found his cell phone and, and discovered how troubled his thoughts were. And then we began, it's been a process to, to accept the fact that he may have intentionally had an accident, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's been uh, difficult to talk ourselves talking about talking about it. It's been, hard having those self-conversations 
to embrace reality and then say, well, what, where do we go from here? You know, how could it be possible? How do we deal with that in our own heart, in our, in our own spirit so that we can move forward? And now to the point where can we help other people see the signs, talk with their teenagers about life, about deep issues in such a way that if a young person is contemplating this horrific act of self-annihilation that they might be able to share in advance what they're thinking so that others can come around them and support them and, and help them. I think that just isolation and isolating your, your thoughts within yourself is probably one of the worst things that a young person or any of us can do. Well, you got that right. I call it allowing or even creating a negative echo chamber in mm -hmm. the head. If, sure. if you, you can, and the more we try not to think about it, the more we're actually doubling down on it. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that this is the dynamic and that the only way to break this cycle is to speak about it, to keep to write about it. You know, but, but better if you can be witnessed with it, if somebody can be with you, which is the whole point behind the suicide prevention hotline is to have someone on the other end who can respond. The challenge is that I never had that number in my cell phone. Right. It never dawned on me to put that number in my cell phone. Mm -hmm. Now I post it every time I go anywhere and it's like, save this in your phone under help. Yeah. And maybe that's an icebreaker for some parents with their kids. You know, I mean, we've got the training program for advocacy, but perhaps just starting with, hey, let's add a phone number to your cell phone. Yeah. And, and that just gives them a chance to open the door to a conversation. Mm -hmm. Sure. Oh, yeah. So that's a thought I hadn't had before. We'll have to add that to the sixth step. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we've uh, we've been on this journey for a little while, and there's a there's a there's no good in any of the losses that you've had, Greg. I know that you had um, foreshadowings for your other two children because of their health issues. I think that's what makes suicide so devastating. Mm -hmm. What we're finding more and more is that sometimes, oftentimes, the first sign is an attempt. Um, what is it that we can do as a culture that's going to make it easier for people to have these conversations before they are forced to? Mm -hmm. Because you've got a background in sociology. I've got a background in survival. You know, I'm a, I was a single mom being raised, and I'd been raised by a single mom. Mm -hmm. So between the two of us coming from those two extremes, Greg, what can we do that's going to make it easier for people to break the silence and start the conversation? Uh, well, those are, that's a great question. I, I think that you know it begins with our social community our family um, if you're married a husband wife relationship or you're with a significant other 
you have children, you have to think about the family structure and how supportive and how open and flowing the communication is with, within your, your family structure. We live in such a fragmented society and we've got these crazy little devices that we paste to our ears and we put in front of our, our faces. You know, traditional forms of human communication are becoming endangered species among the ways that we communicate with each other, unfortunately. And we have to get a little bit of control about that and just think about that. And um, I, I think that, you know, the best advice I would have for parents just in general helping their children is think about time when your family can be together and can really communicate. Um, ban those cell phones from the dinner tables, <laughs> from breakfast, lunch, and, and, and even parents, right? Turn the phone off, put it over on the counter, put it on vibrate. The world can wait while you and your family have that bonding time. Um, I remember when I was teaching sociology, we went through the, the chapter on the family and most sociology textbooks talk about the family in terms of dysfunction. What creates divorce? What creates child abuse? What creates suicide? And it's like a litany of all the negative things that can happen in families. And I remember someone say, saying it once, if you want to detect counterfeit money from genuine money, you have to not just study the counterfeits, you have to study the real McCoy and get so familiar with real coinage and real bills that it's very simple to spot anything that's counterfeit. And I brought that perspective into my sociology teaching because I thought, how should a family really operate? What is healthy communication? What is healthy family structure? And I found a researcher named Nick Stinnett who did a series of uh, surveys in the 1980s um, and he basically put it, did a nationwide inquiry with any family that considered itself to have a great family for however, however they defined that mm -hmm. to answer the surveys and say, what are the things that make your family strong? And then he culled all that research and he came up with six factors as to what made strong families. And I remember that one of them, that one of the to two of the common ingredients in strong families were that they ate meals together frequently, not every meal, but they had some meals that they ate together instead of being like a hotel where you grab your food and, and go all the time. Mm -hmm. And the second was that they had uh, vacations together, some kind of dedicated time getting out of town, having a road trip, landing someplace, unpacking the suitcases, dealing with all the hassles of vacations as well as the fun thereof. Oh, and yeah. it was a great bonding time for families. And I think that, you know, our family always did that but that's the basis because i think if we had talked to our son in advance we had a relationship with our son we mm -hmm. could hug our son he could talk to us we did not have an estranged relationship he wasn't mad at us we weren't mad at him we could have sat down with him and had a great conversation about talk to us about your stresses your struggles things that you're worried about and maybe that all-important question because we knew he was struggling with certain things, bills from college and things like that. Have you ever thought about taking your own life? I know that's a tough question. Have you ever thought about suicide or taking your own life? If that's a silly question, forgive me. But, you know, maybe wow. we could have answered that and had a great conversation. But I think if the young person is thinking, my parents think I'm healthy, my parents think that I'm happy, how can I tell them I'm not? Mm -hmm. We have to open that door they may be crying out for help when we don't even know it. Well, that's how the six-step conversation got created for the suicide prevention advocates. That's actually what the course is about. 
-hmm. is about how do you in six steps walk someone through that conversation. And we geared it specifically towards making this where we can impact large numbers of people. And so with teens, we're teaching it now. We just opened it up for the same thing. So it's not the super personal, like a parent to a child, but certainly the, the system can be used that way. Though I actually kind of recommend the Why Not Workbook um, because that's a faster way for a family to have a conversation, which can lead to some real connection and some fun. And I believe that suicide is certainly serious, but pure prevention, when we can get ahead of the problem, when we can start breaking the silence on suicide before someone has a known risk factor, before they're in trouble. Because when we wait until they're in trouble, we're taking a huge risk, you know, because there may not be any signs. And so, it's you know, instead of trying to figure out whether this is normal or not let's just have the conversation and so we created it in a way where it's all practice so nobody has to be the expert nobody has to get it right just will you practice this with me and sure. that's enough to make a difference and we're getting really amazing feedback on that because the problem is parents don't know how to do it mm -hmm. they, they don't know how to create a conversation that will allow them to do something other than hit and run. Because mm -hmm. here's what usually happens. Parent will hear suicides happening in the high school. You know, oh my God, we've got suicide in our neighborhood. You know, we've got some, and so they'll go to their kid when their kid is on their phone, on their tablet, and they'll just kind of barge in because they're so upset, they're so worried, they don't want to know the answer. And I know that was true for me. I did not want to know what could cause my daughter so much mental and emotional pain mm -hmm. that she would think dying was better than living. And I avoided that conversation for over 20 years. And this is how most parents do it because they don't want to talk about it. They'll barge in. And this is how not to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. Have you thought of taking your own life? Yeah, yeah, right. And the kid's going, who the hell? Yeah, I mean, because there's no connection. And, and if a parent comes into the conversation with a lot of emotion, that's the wrong time to have the conversation. So step one is to relax and to do some relaxation techniques. And many people don't know how, so we actually walk them through that because that's gonna make it easier. The more relaxed you are, the easier it's gonna be for them to actually think you're gonna listen. Mm -hmm. So that's where we had to start. The um, six things that you said, do you happen to remember? Because you were saying Nick Stennett did this research and he came up with six things. And I'm like, you only told us two. Now I'm hanging here. Uh, I do remember some of them. I'm sure I won't remember all, well, all the yeah. six. But whatever you but remember time, would be time, great. Curious. Yeah, time together was one of those time together you okay. have to have some activities where you that you share in common mm -hmm. across the generations and in your family um, another one was open communication open and unrestricted communication because some families have subjects that are off limits or they have um, they just maybe they're they're angry or they have some resentments and they just they're not speaking to a certain member of the family or whatever 
whatever it takes, you have to break those barriers down so those communication barriers open up again. Uh, another, another one of them was spirituality and faith. People have all kinds of understanding of God and the universe and faith, but it was very common for strong families to say, we have a set of core beliefs that wow. we value in our family and we share this, this common perspective of the world and we help each other and support each other in this area of faith. Sometimes it involved going to a church or an organized religion, a house of faith. Sometimes it was more of a private thing as part of the family, but to have a spiritual core for the family was, was one of those. And I do remember that, um, that uh, conflict resolution and conflict management, that having clear delineated practices in place because conflicts always happen in families where we are left to our own devices to invent ways of, of hurting each other and lashing out when conflict happens and just improvising on ways of hurting each other. That's the worst. Whereas if the parents start by modeling, here's how we man manage conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. And then they implement a set of procedures and teach children. Here's how you work, do problem solving and conflict. That was another one that I re recall. Um, and vacations and just having fun together was another one. And so I don't remember how many of the six that is, but I think that might have been five of them. Actually, I think you got them all. Oh, okay, good. I've got, you know, time with meals. Yes. You know, not, doesn't have to be 100%, but frequent. Vacation, mm -hmm. you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the frustrating, you know, having it all and being in as a family and through all of it. And then it was open and unrestricted communication. Mm -hmm. Spirituality, having a common grounding in some kind of spirituality, something that is larger than life. Right. Um, clear conflict resolution. Um, mm -hmm. What are the rules of the game for that? And I love the idea of modeling it. You know, I know families where parents pride themselves on our kids have never seen us fight. Right. <laughs> I'm like, have you ever fought? Well, yeah. I'm like, uh-huh. You think your kids don't know? Yeah. So the lessons that we learn from what we live are something we don't often talk about. But let's face it. If a kid never sees their parents in conflict mm -hmm. and resolving it, then kids don't learn that relationships are resilient. Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the key issues, this, this conversation, because in previous generations, there were multi-generational family meals. You know, it was consistent that there was the whole gathering. Mm -hmm. And kids learned that people could disagree without it becoming a dissolution of a relationship. Mm -hmm. We don't have that so much anymore. We have, I mean, your family is all geographically centric, you know, and I'm an army brat. So I didn't have that experience of multi-generational meals, but I know that my guy Mark did because he was born and raised in the Bronx all the way through kindergarten to high school with the same group of people. You know, so he had this experience of family because all of his family was in that area. Mm -hmm. For those that were raised like I was, we missed that whole class because the modeling wasn't available. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm wondering if there's a way to sort of make that um, vogue again. Because when you said about bringing in the models of families that work, the functional families and, and those kinds of things, all I could think of was the Norman Rockwell pictures. <laughs> and then the Father Knows Best, Donna Reed, you know, those shows that showed this aberrant, this unusual period of time in American history in between the tragedies and traumas of the 40s and the turbulent times of the 60s. And yet this is what we were told was normal. Yeah. And it wasn't. And there's... Do you remember, do you remember the beginning of this whole COVID thing when... 80% of the traffic just disappeared from the roadways and then people were trying to figure out what can we do, you know, to survive and live. I started seeing families taking walks together, uh, parents with their children in tow, riding bicycles, taking bicycle trip, trips on the street. And, I, and then I remembered seeing social media posts about, you know, COVID is horrible, but think of all the family time we've been able to spend with our family. It's been nice to reconnect with members of the family and then, you know, cooking became a big thing. People, you know, who always used to go and eat out. Well, the restaurants were closed. So you had to have meals at home. I mean, some of those things that have been working out well for your family, keep them going. There's no need while we have to go back to our old fragmented, isolated, dysfunctional way of living. <laughs> we can keep those healthy things and move forward. All right. So we need a list of the COVID um we have to find a name for this. We need a list of the what's so good that we want to keep it. COVID keepers. So, there yeah, we go. There we go. Or silver, right. silver lining benefits, right, of the COVID pandemic, something. If we did something that was COVID keepers or something like that, we'll figure it out. But what, what would one thing on your list would be family meals, family cooking, uh, family walks. All right, board there's games. a theme Board games, people looking around, what, what's around the house that we can do together? And it's like, hey, there's a game of chess. There's a game of, you know. Oh, we started playing pepper. virtual Yahtzee, um, sure. you know, with my grandkids, because I don't live in the same town with my kids and grandkids. And so we started having virtual Yahtzee games by Zoom. I think mm. Zoom is the greatest gift to mankind for our <laughs> relationships. So. All right, so we got family walks, family cooking, family board games. There seems to be a theme here. Yeah, it's this word <laughs> family. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is for our family. A family is very important. But uh, another would be would be family virtual family reunions. One of one side of our family had never not been together for about thirty years for a live reunion. Our schedules did not coincide. People lived in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And my parents, uh, who are 90 and 91 respectively, got the idea uh, because we had had some virtual meetings, and this is something I'd recommend to everyone, that after our son passed away, we wanted to honor his memory and have a, a chance for everyone in the family to just share because our grief, we didn't want to bottle that grief up. We wanted to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So we had some Zoom every Sunday night for a period of weeks. We had a regular Zoom meeting, if you couldn't make it, fine, but most people made the effort. Uh, all of Dylan's uh, siblings and some cousins and aunts and uncles and our family got together. So my parents said, after that uh, was over, maybe we should have a reunion with this, the, the whole, the father side of the family, the Sanders side, 
And we, we did, we uh, sent emails out, we tried to get people's phone numbers, got in contact. We had about 35 people and some of the cousins of us hadn't seen each other for like 30 years. Uh, but we got to share, here's what's happening in our family. We got to see, you know, kids that we'd never ever seen their faces before. And it was special and we never would have done that without learning how to use Zoom and then thinking creatively, how can we use this to our advantage? Oh, what a great idea. Cool. Virtual family reunions. All right. I imagine a world where people acknowledge that no topic is off limits. Because part of the fragmentation I think we're seeing is that we do have restrictions on what we talk about. Mm -hmm. There was a whole wave, you know, something that came along called political correctness. Mm -hmm. And it was all based on a premise that I'm just gonna ask your opinion from your perspective. The premise was that other people's emotions were my responsibility. That I might say something that would hurt someone else's feelings or offend them. And I'm like going, I'm a stress management consultant. I can't buy into the fact that I have control over other people's emotions. Because I could go crazy trying to manage. I've had enough trouble managing my own. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I didn't come to that conclusion until I did the one thing that I'm not sure the world is ready for which is I took responsibility for my own emotions. And I came out of the country music, you know, you make me feel, hmm. yeah, and said, you don't have that much power over me. Um, but Greg, am, am I like an aberrant? I mean, is it possible that we do have the power to offend someone rather than they could choose whether or not our words offend them? <laughs> Well, we should be able to have open and honest conversations about the things that really matter. And unfortunately, the PC movement tend to restrict and isolate those topics, which we probably really ought to be talking about. Things that do upset us, things that we're angry about, um, faith issues, political issues. And, you know, these are, these are issues that affect all of us, that affect us. And we have to learn to rise to the level of maturity where we can talk about these things and be respectful when we talk about them. And then, then you bring in communication because listening is so much more important as a form of communication than talking. And if we would all remember that, we could talk about such a wider variety of topics if we would learn the skill of asking questions and then learning from each other and listening. But unfortunately, with these verboten topics, people just want to throw their opinion out there and stomp on people and say, if you don't agree with me, you're an evil person. And that's what kind of kills the, a healthy conversation. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, I've been taking some advanced training in two different arenas and one is emotional intelligence and the other is masterminds. Mm -hmm. And the hot seat concept of where you're asking for help and ideas on something, and we actually read the instructions every time that says if someone gives you an idea, respond with thank you and nothing else. Write it down and consider it later. Mm -hmm. 
because the tendency is to say, oh, I've tried that or that's, you know, I mean, and, and, and that shuts down the creative process. What it also shuts down is any connection. You know, it's not possible to feel connected if you're being stonewalled by this. So I'm thinking that maybe communication training, practice receiving information, that's almost like we could create the board game for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. What What if you were in, oh, you know, all right, I'm going to go where angels do to tread. Sure. The one thing that struck me about the one debate that I have seen for the upcoming election mm -hmm. was that it dawned on me that the only way the moderator would have had a prayer is if they had had the contestants, the um, participants, in those soundproof game show booths that they used to use back in the 50s on game shows, mm -hmm. where they couldn't be heard until the moderator pressed a button and gave them permission to speak. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that would have been an interesting show. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we could do that in our families. And um, talking sticks in um, other cultures mm -hmm. where they actually have um, like, you know, uh, something that the person who's holding it is the one speaking and everyone else is waiting until it's their turn and it can be passed around, you know, in different directions. But anything that gives us the chance to feel safe again, mm -hmm. having a conversation. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Can you pass that over to me? There you go. Yeah. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> but that's true. And some families do that. It's like, here's our little soft ball. I'm going to pass it to you now. It's your, it's your, your time to share. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really got possibilities that we can bring back some structure mm -hmm. because that's one of the things that what you're talking about with these ideas of how to improve communication, we're actually talking about having some structure where there's an expectation that there's going to be time to share. And now, granted, there was this huge comedy routine. Um, it wasn't intended to be a comedy routine, but on the MASH, um, the old TV show MASH, yep. where um, Hawkeye was in conversation with this really stodgy, um, I think I've forgotten his last name now, but the guy was saying, yo, Hawkeye, you had a dad. In my household at dinner, I was one of three siblings. I had the space between the soup and the salad. That was my time to share. And to this day, the side of lettuce makes me talk faster. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's an extreme right. structure. <laughs> we, yeah, our kids learn the most amazing things that I would never have expected would have mm -hmm. been the lessons. Yeah. That I, that I was thought they were getting. Hmm. They make up their own, and the idea that someone could have this rigid sharing between these two courses, and that that would forever, you mm -hmm. know, have an impact on how they communicate. We want the more Hawkeye version, you know, the more Midwest version where there are there's structure but not restriction. Mm -hmm. I think is the balance that we're looking for. Can I circle back to something? Yeah, please. The, the six ingredients of strong families, I do remember the sixth one, 
the eating meals together and the doing activities together are all part of the same one. Mm -hmm. And the sixth one is positivity, having a positive emotional ambiance or environment in the home and just learning to embrace life, <clears throat> looking at the glass as half full. Because you can, you know, when parents have to start, so something goes wrong on a vacation and maybe you don't get as far, you don't reach Yellowstone and you get stuck in some campsite instead. You can bemoan the loss of not reaching your original goal or you can find some wonderful hike or something to do or some town that you can explore that you never would have encountered had you reached your regiment. So you have to employ that kind of thinking. And I think that that goes for communication as well. Even when you have an argument with someone else, if you put positivity first, you can be thinking, we've had this argument, we're now resolving it. Can mm -hmm. we now become a str stronger and have a stronger relationship because this happened than we did before. If you can get into that mindset that there's always a positive way to look at every negative situation. And to the point where a few months after I lost my son, I found myself talking to myself, talking about communication. Self-talk is also huge. And before we begin having positive communication and positive talk with other people, we have to learn how to talk to ourselves in positive ways, agreed? So I was thinking about, you know, the, the thought that kept it reoccurring to me is 2018 was the year's worst year of my life. That's the phrase that kept coming back. You, you lost two children, one age 25, one age 22. What a horrible year. You know, you're just recovering from one funeral, then another uh, child dies and insurance policies and all that. And I just defined it that way. It's the worst year. And then Really, God talked to me one morning and he said, do you really believe I've got this in my hands? Or do you believe that you're just out there floundering uh, alone to deal with this by yourself? And the thought was, no, I mean, God, I trust you. I believe you. And then he said, well, why are you calling it the worst year of your life? Those children are now with me. Those children are angels in heaven. They have no more suffering. They have no more pain. Can you reframe that somehow? And I was thinking to myself, it's really the best year of my life, not by losing my children, but think of the fact that I had those children for 22 years. I enjoyed their lives. I celebrated their lives. I raised them. I had wonderful memories with them, and I have the photographs to prove that. What a great celebration of life, and it deepened my understanding of life, of relationships, of how to work through crisis, in a way that I never would have had happen. And so I started talking to myself. Can I, in all honesty, Lee, say 2018 was a great year. It was the best year of my life because I choose to make that the best year of my life. And it just, it, you wouldn't believe the effects that it had on my emotional, my, my core self when I was able to, to say that and, and to believe it. That's an amazing faith-based challenge to have that awakening in the morning with, do you believe I've got this? Because it is true that when we have the most need for our faith in anything, 
is the times where we tend to forget where we put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oftentimes it's right where we we're right where we left it. I'm glad that yours found you. What an amazing thought. Now, since the last couple of years, you've not been teaching, but no. you've found other ways that I really, I'm just, I'm going to touch on them briefly because I know you have a gift for everyone. You're offering them something priceless in my imagination, in my mind, that it is a membership into a community. Mm-hmm. And so the community, I, um, you'll, I want to give you just a couple of minutes and l- tell them about the community that you've created. Okay, because it's, it's sure. MAX, right? What does MAX yeah. stand for? Uh, the MAX community, it just stands for maximizing your life, your relationships, and your purpose for living. Cool. And we, sure. and we, and we focus on technology, how, because everybody struggles with technology, right? I've got this great purpose, this great business, this great idea, and I know that we have to use Zoom and all these techie things, but I hate tech. I'm not a tech person. So we're the community that can make your vision come true by helping you work, uh, choose appropriate technology that fits your purpose, that fits your personality, your skill set, and uh, we're kind of a place to land if you have problems and questions, and we support we support you and what you're trying to do. That that's a wonderful wonderful gift, Greg, that you are offering to the listeners of this, and we've dropped the link in the chat, and we will also put it in the show notes. So anyone who is listening, anyone who's watching this um, in the replay, just look in the show notes for the link to the community. It is given the power that we have established for what a family group, what a community group could be Um, I changed the final character of the link, and I apologize for that, but I just added that to the chat. So it ends with the Uh one and not the letter R. Uh Uh-huh. All right, there we go. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you caught it. I forgot I gave you the earlier link, so my, my apologies for that. You know, there, there's just an amazing moment where we go, yeah, welcome to show business. You know, just when you think that it's going to be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that I love the environment because the ability to respond to what's going on and we have just more to respond to now so people you might as well get a little resilient and just laugh because it's gonna happen and i've you know there was a time where i would have ended something like this and gotten off and gone darn that didn't go right you know and and now it is doesn't even carry over when it's over it's over and we're about to call this over any one final thought, Mr. Greg, because you have just been delightful and I so appreciate you being willing to come on and share your story. I just want to say, I know that people are part of this for many different reasons. You may be the next speaker or two coming up, or you may just be someone that has, is struggling with these issues. But if there's anything that I can do, um, I am just so grateful to be a part of this. It is really that my first appearance and talking about my son in a public way um, since he passed away two years ago in two days. And it's, it's a big step for me. Um, and I just really appreciate Jack, you inviting me to be uh, in this forum. If there's any way that I can, can help uh, moving forward in the future or help anyone that's part of your listening audience, I would be really honored to, to help. 
Greg, I had no idea. Thank you. You are most welcome. Hang on. The ride gets more interesting from here. <laughs>